All right, you guys, why don't you do a favor and open up in your Bibles to the book of Hosea. And so we're starting actually a brand new ser- uh, series this uh, week, and we're going to be in this series probably through to sometimes around, sometime around um, uh, Easter time. And we will take some breaks periodically uh, for Christmas time and maybe a few other uh, in-between things. But for the most part, this will take us probably till around the time of Easter. And so uh, the book of Hosea, we'll be starting this morning in chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 1. But before we jump in, what I want to really emphasize is that this book is uh, not intended to just simply be read. It can be, but there's a storyline in here that's intense. And the storyline, if you're familiar at all with the book of Hosea, it's the plot for the most part. It starts out in verses, uh, chapters 1 through 3 with God's command coming to Hosea to do something that's absolutely odd or strange or out of the ordinary. And what God asks Hosea to do is to go out and to find and marry a prostitute and then ultimately have children with her. And he will end up having or she will end up having three children, uh, one of which is probably most scholars would agree is actually Hosea's. The other two perhaps are not. And uh, so it's a very intensely emotional storyline. And the reason why God tells Hosea to do this is because Hosea is to, in many ways, sort of be a living parable of God's relationship with his people Israel, whom God calls his bride. And yet his bride, Israel, whom God has been extremely nothing but faithful to, Israel will repeatedly and continually uh, go through cycles of betrayal and unfaithfulness to God. And God describes that unfaithfulness in those seasons and periods of betrayal as spiritual adultery. So the whole storyline is very important for us to not just simply read on an intellectual level, but to enter into it emotionally. Because the reality, most of us, to some degree, would be able to identify with some level of betrayal. And if you have not in any way, shape, or form experienced some level of betrayal throughout your life, at some point you will. And it's intense, and it's taxing, and it's destructive. And this is what God calls Hosea into to participate, to be a part of, to put on really specific uh, public display by way of living parable, uh, this relationship with this gal by the name of Gomer, which we'll unpack that in a moment. But what I want to do first is I want to show a little video. I, show, I found a video on YouTube or a handful of a series of videos, uh, some church, I'm not even really sure the name of the church that actually uh, uh, created these. Uh, there's no words in it, so it's just music and uh, a video. It's actually, I think they're done really beautifully. So um, just watch it a couple minutes long and engage it, and begin to sort of emotionally enter into the story of Hosea. And as soon as it's done, we'll begin reading at verse 1, go down to verse 3. So, here's the video.
the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beri. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. In the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. God, as we just begin to enter into your word, that you, through your word, through your Holy Spirit, would begin to inform, reconstruct, rearrange, confront God areas in our hearts and our lives. God, your word is sacred. Your Holy Spirit is powerful. And God, begin to do a fresh new work in our hearts, revealing to us the fact in a lot of ways that we here in this room are not too different than your ancient people, Israel. And you have always stayed the same, faithful to the end. So God, I pray this morning that you would help our eyes to be fixed upon the centerpiece of all history, your son, Jesus. What do you accomplish for us? So God, we give you this morning. We ask that you would take and shape and change our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we started a brand new series, as I've already mentioned, in the book of Hosea. And what I want to do is kind of give a little bit of a 36,000-foot above sea level overview um, today. And uh, we'll be only looking at three verses, but as we continue, we'll pick up the pace and begin to look through this book a lot faster, because in a lot of ways, this book is, uh, is to be read in sort of chunks and ideas and concepts that kind of arise in it, as opposed to like the book of Ephesians, where you can read a verse in the book of Ephesians and spend six weeks on one verse, because uh, there's a lot of rich content in there, and it's to be, in a lot of ways, read like that, whereas this book is to be read in a way of a story, and it's to be read in that way. But what I wanted this morning is I want to I kind of give a little bit of an overview, a high overview, I should say, of the book. And um, larger picture, the idea of trying to understand the gospel within this great book. What I mean by that, by the word gospel, is the same idea that the New Testament means, is the idea of good news. It's good news. And really what we mean by that is that the good news, that God is not abandoned this world and its brokenness, God has not abandoned you in your brokenness, but that God has chosen to do something about the brokenness that is existent in this world and is no doubt existent within your own life, to do something about that, to take that upon himself, to change it, to reshape it, to bring life into it, to give himself over to it, to transform it, to change it towards something good and beautiful. This is what God intends to do. This is what God intended to do with Israel. This is what God intended to do uh, in the New Testament church when Jesus came. This is what God always intends to do. So we would describe that action on God's behalf as being good news or, there we are back to that New Testament word, gospel. It's this good news. So I want to take a look at kind of this bigger theme, idea, picture of the gospel being in the book of Hosea. Um, before we do that, I want to kind of set this into a little bit of a context because uh, this book has a context, meaning it was written at a particular point in time. It was written to a group of people 
particular concepts and ideas and issues that they were struggling with and dealing with. So we got to do, to some degree, a little bit of work uh, to try to understand within the context so we don't just simply uh, read it ourselves and think that everything doesn't pertain to anybody else except myself. Um, there's elements where it does pertain to you, but at the end of the day, it's important and helpful for us to understand its context. So I'll take a look at the next slide. We'll kind of go through a handful of these things in terms of some of the information that we kind of arise, uh, we see arise throughout the book. First of all, the name Hosea um, <coughs> is a, a name very similar to the name uh, Joshua. In fact, a lot of scholars think that the, it was originally the name Joshua, but somehow the H and the, the, the J somehow got mixed up through time and whatnot. But the idea is basically the same. And in English, we can say the name is uh, God or Jehovah. The name of God, Jehovah, is salvation. Uh, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that Jesus' name is a name that's actually derived from the Hebrew name Joshua or Hosea. It means the same thing. So in other words, uh, Hosea's name is and shares the same meaning as Jesus, which is very interesting because if you look at the story that Hosea is actually being called to, to become sort of a portrayal of, or an incarnation, if you would, of God's love in a very profound and prophetic sense. So in other words, he points forth to the idea that God is truly salvation. Secondly, we see that Hosea was also, if you're familiar with the Old Testament history at all, he was a contemporary of a handful of other prophets, uh, Isaiah being the most notable. And then uh, Micah and Amos were also prophets that lived there in the same time. Uh, Hosea's major concern and what he oftentimes prophesied against was uh, what was identified as the worship of Baals or uh, Baal worship um, or the Baal worship cult, which is what he was concerned with. Uh, Hosea's ministry was ba- basically towards the latter part of the 7th century. Uh, what's important to know in terms of the context there is that Israel, uh, at this particular state and time of uh, Hosea's prophesying, they were a divided nation. At one point, Israel was a united nation. There was no distinction. But at this time, Israel was divided between the north and the south. Uh, the north was called Israel. Its capital city was a place called Samaria. The south was called Judah. Its capital was actually called, does anybody know? Trivia? Bible trivia? Jerusalem. Who said that? Raise your hand. All right. Clap for this guy. He got it. Good job. No one wants to clap. Sorry. I tried. Tried. Anyways, the point of the matter is, is that the north and the south, you have those two uh, different types of um, capital cities. Um, why this was significant, why this was important was because during this time, just prior to Hosea's prophesying, the nation had sort of um, encountered a lot of great blessing. There was a lot of money. There's a lot of income. Uh, property values were really high. People were investing. There was a lot of money. In fact, some biblical scholars actually describe it as a time of great decadence. I love that word decadence because several years ago, I discovered sort of the root meaning or the uh, etymology of that particular word decadence. One of the root words of that word is decay. You get the idea of decay kind of being part of the concept of decadence. And uh, even though the nation was thriving, it was prosperous, had a lot of money, a lot of investment going on. People were living very large uh, the rich were getting rich. The poor were getting poor. A lot of injustice were, injustices were being done. A lot of properties were skyrocketing. A lot of trinkets were being bought. A lot of stuff was going on that, was, for the most part, on the external element, looked really good. And when you look at the nation, you be like, this is a time to invest. This is a time to buy property. This is a time to live large. At the end of the day, uh, what they didn't know, because for the most part, they were not in any way under threat of any external attacking or military strike. 
But towards the center of the center, towards the center of the century, towards the center of the seventh BC, what happened was there was a massive world superpower that was actually beginning to rise on the world stage. It was a nation or an empire called the Assyrian Empire. If you're familiar with the uh, the history at all of Bible history, you know that the Assyrians were very uh, just they were horrendous when it came to destroying out uh, and wiping out other nations. Uh, around this particular time that Hosea was prophesying, he was basically saying that if you don't turn from your ways, uh, you will end up being swept up and overtaken by the Assyrians. Uh, again, a little bit of a side trivia that uh, what happened was the north did end up falling. So uh, Israel did end up falling and the capital of the north, uh, Samaria, did end up falling to the Assyrian Empire. And what had happened was you had when the Assyrians came in, they would oftentimes commingle. So you would have the dudes basically having sex with all the women and that was purposeful. Because the idea was to cause a nation or to cause a culture to go extinct. So by having the dudes from Assyria intermingle with the women of uh, Israel, within a generation, you have an entire wiping out of an entire culture. But in reality, what happened was you had sort of a hybrid culture arise, which gives you a little bit of an insight in the New Testament when Jesus is giving stories and making journeys to this little town called Samaria, and why Jesus gives these little parables. He's like, you want to know a hero of a story? He's even better than the prophets and the priests. There's a Samaritan. He's a good Samaritan. And he does good things. That was shocking because the Jews in the first century hated the Samaritans because they were sort of this half-breed. It was a commingling of Jewish people with Assyrian. And not only that, but they had weird, strange worship uh, ways in which they approached God. And it was sort of a weird, strange Samaritan cult. They had very um, unorthodox beliefs and practices that they followed. And so uh, the point of the matter is, is that the Assyrian empire came in and overtook the region of the north, Israel, they fell. Uh, the region of Samaria had fallen. And now next, Judah was under threat or the south was under threat of being overtaken. And this was a period of time that Hosea was prophesying to the people of Israel. So with that being said, in the next slide we'll take a look at, there's just kind of a quick way you can outline the whole book. Uh, chapters 1 through 3 is really the story of Hosea's marriage. Chapters 4 through 14, uh, which composes the majority of the book, is Hosea's message. So Hosea had, in fact, you can say messages. Hosea had a lot of messages he had to share. Uh, they had general themes running throughout them, but for the most part, um, this is kind of the way that we can break this down. What I want to do this morning is I want to, as we kind of overview all of this, I want to point out um, major, what I would kind of describe as like mega themes, major themes that sort of arise throughout the book. And as we begin to get into the book, we'll begin to kind of look at these themes more in depth as we make our way through them. But um, I'm just more or less touching on these themes and we'll uh, begin to make our way through them. So I'll tell you what they are up front and then we'll begin to look at them one by one. First of all, we'll take a look at the theme of Israel or God's people. Second theme we'll take a look at is Israel's unfaithfulness. Uh, third theme we'll take a look at that arises is Israel's consequences because along with their unfaithfulness came these consequences. And finally, the fourth theme uh, is God's faithfulness. And in other words, we can put it this way, God's faithfulness sort of in the context of really good news or the gospel in the book of Hosea. So with that, let's jump in. We'll take a look at the first theme, which is Israel. Israel throughout the book of Hosea is compared to, or there's at least two metaphors to identify Israel. The first of which is the most common, we'll look at that in a moment, is Israel as being a bride or uh, a wife to God. 
the one lesser known one is, I, uh, is Israel being identified as being a son to God um, and God being the father. So real quick, we'll take a look at that first metaphor, chapter 11, verse 1. So why don't you turn there real quick. Chapter 11, verse 1 says this. God speaks of Israel as being a son to him. And he says, when Israel was a child, I loved them or I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. There's the word. He says, and the more that uh, they were called, the more they went away. And they kept sacrificing the bowels and worshiping offerings to idols. And so what God says about his son, and another way to kind of think about the son is that God didn't give birth to the son. God adopted this son. And what God says is, I actually found Israel in Egypt and I adopted Israel. I called Israel to be my son. If you know anybody that has ever adopted a child, you know that someone or people that engage sort of in that that role of adoption is absolutely amazing. I have nothing but the absolute highest regard and respect for uh, parents that go out of their way and go through that painful process of an expensive process of adopting. But I think what's beautiful about it is it's one of the most unbelievable pictures of God, that God uh, adopts people into his family. And one of the things that I've been told that when parents adopt children, it's very challenging. One of the most challenging things is, depending upon where you adopt your child, is that if, for example, you go into an orphanage, there might be like, you know, 25, 40 kids in there, but you know that you can't go home with 25 and 40 kids. You got to go home with one or maybe two. And it's very challenging, the process of trying to select. Who do I select? What child do I take? Because parents oftentimes deal with the sense of guilt. Like I'm, I'm turning my back on, you know, 24 of these kids. I'm only taking one of them. But there's a painful process that goes along with that. And what God is saying is that I, I adopted Israel. And Israel was, was not a golden child. They were a problem child. They were the obstinate child. They were the child that was, that was malnourished. That was broken. That was crippled. That, was, that had issues. That had problems. It was a child that everybody else rejected. It was a child that nobody else wanted. It was a child that... After it had been combed through time and time again, people had gone in there. Everybody would have turned their back on that little problem child Israel. But God says, I didn't turn my back on them. I selected them. I chose them. And in my selection of them, Israel continued in their level of obstinacy towards me. They were a rebellious child even after showering them with kindness and affection. So second metaphor we see is uh, Israel not only as a son, but also Israel as a bride. And we see this as the most uh, noteworthy of the metaphors that we see arise in the book of Hosea. So Hosea chapter 2, verse 19 says this. So we're going to be turning around in the Bible a lot today because, like I said, this is more of an overview. We'll be looking at a lot of selected scriptures throughout just to kind of uh, point these things out to us as we go through them. So chapter 2, verse 19 says this. And there I will give her, uh, whoops, wrong verse. Chapter 2, verse 19. Sorry. Here we go. And I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. The idea that God is saying is that I wooed you, I called you, and I made you my bride. Now, for guys, that's a little bit of a challenging metaphor for us, for some of us to accept. And I realize that even in the New Testament, uh, the Bible describes Jesus being the bridegroom and the church as being his bride. Sometimes for dudes, the idea of being clothed in a white dress is a little bit unnerving for some of us. All right? But if you think of it this way, the idea of a bride or being in that covenantal type relationship 
if you're a guy and you have a hard time with that, I totally get it, completely understand it. But think of it this way. Think of somebody that you absolutely respect, highly regard, highly honor, somebody that you would love to be around and be with, and they vow themselves to you. They say, I, I'm going to be here for you. I'm going to be the source of wisdom that you need. I'm going to be the source of protection, the source of friendship, everything that you need. I'll be here for you. You can think of it that way. It may be a lesser analogy than that of a bride and a bridegroom or a husband and a wife, but to some degree, um, to s- some of the elements kind of fit. But the point that I'd make is this, is that God says of Israel that she is like a wife to me. And not just any wife, but a faithless wife, a wife that has been given everything. But instead, at some point, this wife actually turns her back on her bridegroom, on her husband, and then becomes unfaithful to him. One of the interesting things about God marrying Israel is that whenever somebody, think of the, the stories, like, um, remember the movie Pretty Woman? It's been a long time since I watched that, so I'm probably, I'm probably not going to tell you what the story is about because I probably won't remember. But all I remember is, to some degree, Richard Gere was in there and what, what was the other girl's name? There you go, Julia Roberts, sorry. <laughs> whatever, whatever her name is, she's washed up right now. Anyhow, the point of the matter is, sorry, sorry, God forgive me. Um, anyways, I don't do the sound of the cross either. Anyways, back on track. It's a story, she, she's, she's a prostitute and he goes out of his way to... Love her, I think, in not an impure way. But back on track, all right? Let's just back up like five minutes and get back on track here. So point of the matter is, is think of somebody that is low and forsaken and rejected and is broken and, has no, and is nothing but a liability to everybody around. When somebody of great value, great worth, great honor, great respect, great wealth say, marries or takes that person who has nothing, who is nothing but a liability. The moment she is swept up into that relationship and married, all of her liabilities are, are assumed by him and all of his assets transfer into her life. All of her liabilities swept up by the one who has power to take care of him and all of, her, all of his assets more than enough to overcompensate for everything that she ever needs. That's what Jesus said. That's what God says I did with Israel. Israel was a prostituting woman who was broken, who was despised, who was rejected. No one would have ever wanted. Except I went out after her and I brought her into me, liabilities and all. And instead of liabilities, I gave her everything that I have. And in the midst of that, Israel had betrayed God and turned their back on God. So the second thing that leads into kind of the theme of Israel's unfaithfulness. That Israel has actually committed herself really to other lovers. And this is a theme that arises on and on throughout the entire book. That Israel is regularly and repeatedly giving herself away to other deities or other gods. For example, Hosea chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 says this. I'll read it. It says, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. So God's basically saying, everyone who lives in the land of Israel, I got a problem with you. And here's what I got a problem with. God says, there's no faithfulness or steadfast love. I've promised and I pledge to give you faithfulness and steadfast love. Instead of faithfulness and steadfast love, you've been unfaithful and you've been constantly shaky and stumbling in your love back to me. And what God is gonna go on to say In verse 2, he says, and there is swearing and lying and murdering and stealing and committing adultery. And they break all bonds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. And therefore the land mourns and 
uh, and all who dwell in, its, in it languishes, and the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea have been or are going to be taken away. So here's what God's saying, is that all the inhabitants of the land, the people of Israel, my wife, uh, I've pledged myself to them to be faithful. Instead of them being faithful to me, they have not been faithful to me. And as a result, they have resorted to lying, stealing, being covetous, giving themselves away, murdering other people. The rich are getting rich. The poor are getting poor. The oppressed, the poor, the hurting are being stepped on, neglected, turned aside. And God's saying that I have a problem with that, that this is not okay. Israel has been unfaithful. They haven't kept their side of the covenant of the relationship. Hosea chapter, uh, what we had just read at the very beginning, um, in verse 3, it says this. In verse 2, it says, When the word of the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said, Go take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. And God says, Here's why. Here's why I want you to do this. It's a living parable. And the reason why is because this is exactly what Israel has done. So Hosea, in this living parable, you're to be the faithful husband. And Israel and, and your wife, Gomer, is to be the unfaithful bride. She will continue within her patterns and pathway of whoredom, being a prostitute. But you will continue in your path and your commitment to be devoted to her nonetheless. No matter what type of actions or uh, choices she makes, uh, or what, no matter what type of love affair she might have with somebody or something else, you continue to remain loving to her. This is what God is saying. And the reality is, is, I've often said this before, but what's ironic within the whole story here is that Israel's real problem is not so much in her sins. And what I mean by that is in her being covetous. The, the, the real problem for Israel was not that people were going around robbing from other people, being covetous, wife swapping, whatever it is that they did, you know, stealing another person's cow or Whatever the circumstances that were going on, the real issues were not so much sin in those specific details. It was really an issue of inordinate love. They loved the wrong things. The real problem for Israel was a worship problem. They were giving their heart and their affection away to other things that were not God. And as a result of that, it was bringing about and creating behavior that was destructive and patterns that were destroying them as well as the people all around them. Our real problems for all of us, fundamentally, is not the fact that we do bad things. It's that we love and worship the wrong things. That's the fundamental problem for all of us. Let me break it down even further for you. Because we can look at, see, here's what moralists love, and oftentimes religious moralists, if I can put it this way, religious people that love to emphasize morality. You know, do good things, don't drink beer, read your Bible every day, don't go to R-rated movies. They love to focus on certain external actions and say, as long as you do these things, you'll be a good Christian. But the problem is, is that you can still avoid those specific things, but have wrong affections in your heart and be the most hideously rude, arrogant, condescending person around. Because the real problem is, is what you love. You love the wrong things. I'll give you an example. So let's say you love the approval of man. You want desperately for somebody in your world around you to approve of you. Let's just say on a psychological level, someone in your past, they said, you know, you didn't get the approval from your mom or dad. And so here you are now in your life trying to get approval from somebody. So let's just say hypothetically, for example, you are living to get the approval from somebody else. 
for you to make that as the uppermost primary thing in your life means that you have valued that above and beyond everything else in your life. You value the approval of somebody else more than God himself. So you will lie in order to maintain the approval. You will lie in order to maintain a particular appearance that you have. You'll lie in order to somehow protect the reputation that you have. So let's say, for example, you want that approval of somebody that you value in your life, and you will do anything you can to continue to posture yourself in a place so that they will approve of you. So you'll be covetous. You'll lie. You'll step on other people in order to get that approval from that particular person that you want. The problem is, is not so much that you have done sinful things. First and foremost, primarily the main root causal problem is you love the wrong thing. And as a result of loving the wrong thing, you act the wrong way. Religious people just focus on behavior. Get the behavior right and you'll be a good person. Not at all. It doesn't go deep enough. It's too shallow. It's too, it's too surfacy. Jesus goes to the root of it. He goes to the heart of it. And what God is basically saying to his people here is that the real issue is that you worship the wrong things. You love the wrong things. And you keep giving yourself away to all of these false deities, hoping somehow for them to give you something in return. And what they keep giving you back in return is nothing but defilement, brokenness, shame, destruction, not just to you, but to everybody in your land. I'll tell you what, the book of Hosea is not some light, fluffy, chipper book that you're going to read and be like, oh, this is awesome. <laughs> like, you're not going to walk out of here today and just be like, oh, I mean, hopefully we'll get there, all right? But the reality is to get to that path first, we have to deal with the, 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 the substance, the reality of what God's getting at here. That Israel's sin was dark. Our sin is dark. And God doesn't just simply sweep sin away. He deals with it in a very profound way. So that was Israel's unfaithfulness. The second, or third thing we see uh, in terms of theme is Israel's consequences. I'll go through these very quickly. First of all, we see Israel's consequences. In other words, whenever... Israel gave themselves away to these false deities, false gods. In this particular case, we had already alluded to it. Is they engaged in what was called the worship of Baal. And we will spend more time over the next several weeks and months unpacking what the worship of Baal looked like. It was a cult worship that is not in existence today. So, you know, none of you are going to be like, oh, I'm familiar with Baal worship. I knew someone came to my house trying to peddle Baal worship. You know, you're not going to, you're not going to have that. But so we'll unpack that more. But the point of the matter is, is that's what they were swept up in, was the worship of Baal. And as a result of that, they were on a path of destruction. So they were destroying themselves. They were ultimately wounding others, as well as their land. Because again, whenever you value or raise something to the highest level, other than God, it will create self-destruction and a path of self-destruction all around you. Um, you will end up stepping on other people. Have you ever wondered why sometimes some people advance really quickly, fast within a particular uh, field or vocation? Because at the end of the day, maybe what's motivating them is they want to be recognized by the top dog. And so they will step on other people. They will lie in order to get their way. They will push you out to the side. They will hang you out to dry. They will betray you. They will stab you in the back because as long as they can get to that place where they're recognized. Then they got everything. Did you see what I just described? That was a path of destruction. 
Somebody's being stepped on. Somebody's being stabbed in the back. Somebody's being betrayed. You multiply that by what? What do we got right now? Eight billion people on the planet Earth right now? You got a lot of hurt. You got a lot of wounds, a lot of brokenness that needs to be solved and resolved and healed. So they wounded others in their land and ultimately they provoked God to anger and then ultimately to action. We'll be spending more time over the next several weeks and months unpacking this concept, the idea of the anger or the wrath of God. In a lot of ways, this is one of the most misunderstood elements within the modern day world because when people hear the concept or the idea of the wrath of God, they immediately freak out and they get upset and they start saying, well, I thought God was a God of love. How can God be a God of wrath? You've got to understand something about who God is, what God created, and what God intends for his good creation. God intends blessing. God intends kindness. God intends people to work and operate with, from within uh, a world of love. And yet that is not this world that we live in. I think honestly, we can all be very honest with each other and just say the world that we live in right now is not a world where everybody is like, you know, well, pardon me. You know, let me just give you my place in line. You know, I'll go to the back of the Starbucks line and there's 20 people deep, but that's kind of fine. I'll wait another half an hour, 45 minutes to get my latte just so I can serve you. That's not the world we live in. We live in a world where we step on each other. We push people to the side. We betray people. And what God is saying is that this is not the world that I created. I create a world that would reflect and model and image me. In other words, a world that portrays, shines forth love, kindness, forgiveness, graciousness, generosity. But the world that we live in is everything of the opposite of that. And God is saying, as he looks at this, as he looks at his people Israel, and he's saying, I'm angry. You've rebelled against me. It's not just somehow sin infected you, like some sort of a disease that can be shed. It's that you have actually, like my wife, you have gone out after other lovers. You have given yourself to these other lovers instead of giving yourself to me. And as a result, you've broken down. See, here's the thing. Sin dehumanizes us. It destroys us. It destroys our potential, destroys our capabilities. So when you see people hating each other and despising each other and stabbing each other in the back, when you have two people, one offends them and the other is offended, and they're constantly looking for ways to get out of the relationship and run and hide and to attack each other and counterattack each other, and these have these little tribal wars, God looks at that and says, this is not what I intended. This is not the pathway that I've chosen, I've called my people to enter into, to be engaged by, to be overwhelmed by. But what God looks at and says, these people are not acting as people. They're acting as less than humans. Sin dehumanizes us. One of the most graphic examples of this comes from one of my favorite movies, Lord of the Rings. Next slide. Some of you guys know who Smeagol is, right? He was this jolly, happy little hobbit at one point. If you know anything about hobbits, they love to eat. They're not really too into education, and they love to just have a good time. They're kind of like fraternity brothers. And they, what happened was one day Smeagol was out, and they discovered this ring, and what ends up happening, if you're familiar with the scene in the story, he ends up killing, slaughtering, I don't know if it was his brother or his friend or whoever it was, he kills the guy and gets the ring. And then what happens is probably one of the most, this scene right here, if you've ever seen the movie, it's this, this scene right here is worth watching. Just it's like five, 10 minute scene, find it somehow, buy the movie, whatever. Just this scene alone is powerful because it's a description of the degradation of the moving into or the devolving into something less than 
human or less than hobbit, all right? And what happens is he transforms into Gollum because he loves this ring. The issue is not his sin. It's what he loves. It's what he worships. He becomes horrifically sinful and does horrific things all stemming from what he loves. What do you love? What do you love in your heart more than anything else? What is it that you are passionate about more than anything else in your life that you would give yourself to, you would write a check for in an instant, that you would immediately drop any arrangements you have with your family, your workplace, other friends, just to get into this particular thing? What is that thing? What do you love so much that if it wasn't there, you would break down? You would come apart. You would unravel because it's gone. For Gollum, it was this ring. For you and I, it's different. For Israel, it was the worship of Baals. And God says, I'm angry over this because it's dehumanized you. It's destroyed you. Your love affair with this thing is absolutely crippling. Every good thing I created. And what God does is the reason why he says he hates our little pathways into sin is because every time we sin and we love something other than God, it shapes us and changes us. So for example, Psalm 115 says this, they become like the gods they worship. They have eyes, but they don't see. So they would worship these little these little statues, and God kind of makes this, uh, you know, recommendation as he's looking at this. He says, look, these little statues you have, they have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. He says, my people Israel are becoming just like them. They're becoming blind, and they're becoming deaf. Um, Later on in the book of Hosea, chapter 4, verse 16, God says this, "Um, Israel, my people, have become like a heifer, like a cow. So some of us might be like, whoa, that's like, hardcore gnarly language why would call god call his people a big fat cow like it's not a nice thing to say but if you know anything about bow worship they worship the image that they worship was a cow and it was stubborn and god's saying my people israel are becoming like this image that they've given their hearts over to because what you love what you love what you value what you cherish more than anything else in this life have you also noticed something corresponds to that, you will always give your heart over to that thing. Always. And rarely is it like, ah, I gotta do this. It's joyfully you do this. But what happens is that if you give your heart to anything other than the God who created you, it will dehumanize you, it will crush you, it will defile you, it will destroy you. And it will then have a rippling effect outward to destroy others around you. Finally, we see that there's this final theme of God's faithfulness. Because even though God is angry at the sin and the choice of his people, God also has this element of incredible compassion. Chapter 11, verse 7. Why don't you turn it real quick. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 7. I'm done with this. He says this. He says, my people are bent on turning away from me. He says, and though they call out to the most high, he will not rise up to them. And then God goes on to say, verse 7, I'll read it right up here. He says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. 
My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God, and I'm not a man, the Holy One in the midst, in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. And this has puzzled a lot of um, Hebrew scholars over the years. How is it that God can actually, you know, because in the law, uh, an adulterous wife, you would actually take her out and you would stone her. That was basically the way the tribal law was written. That if a woman was caught in the act of adultery, she would be taken out and stoned, put to death. And here God is actually basically saying something that is contradictory, if, you, if I can be so bold to say that, or in opposition or seemingly opposition to his own law. How can God say, I'm not going to kill Israel? She's committed adultery. She's sinned egregiously. She's sinned regularly. She's sinned continuously. But I will not destroy her. Instead, God says, I will have compassion on her. And the word compassion is an amazing English word. It's the word, um, two words. It's the word with, come, and then passion. We get the idea from the Latin, the idea of suffering. It's the word with suffering. It's the idea of having compassion over someone is that you can actually enter into their suffering and know what they're going through and engage it. And what God is saying is that rather than crush Israel, because that's what she deserves, I will spare Israel, and I will forgive Israel. God takes his path that most of us are absolutely fearful of taking. You know why? Because we live in a world that when someone offends you, they hurt you, if you've ever been on this particular path, someone has done something to you and it's been painful, you know that in order to forgive them, there's a price tag attached to that. Not money. I mean, maybe in some cases it may be money, but most cases it's not money. Most cases it means you being able to open your heart up again in order to welcome them in. I mean, you might say, I forgive you, but you never welcome them in again. In some cases, you know, obviously it may be wise to never hang out with that person again because of their actions, because you're not sure whether or not they've changed and whatnot. But on on, on most general cases, the idea of actually entering into the world of forgiveness is an extremely brutal and painful bloody process. Because what it entails is somebody being willing to say, rather than me abandon you, rather than me divorce you, rather than me write you off, rather than me toss you to the curb, rather than me berate you or destroy you or attack you, I won't. I will actually come to you and I will receive you again. That step, that process is so bloody and painful and devastating that most of us look at those moments of reconciliation and say it's too much to pay. I'm gone. Go to another church. Go to another place. Go to another family. Go to another small Bible study. Go to another city. Go to another family. It's too much to pay. But what we see with God is God says, price is great. It's bloody. It's painful, but I will have compassion. I will enter into their suffering. And the book of Hosea actually answers the anomaly as it points forward to the cross as to how God can actually say, I will choose to forgive Israel rather than crush Israel. And the reason why God can say that is because on the cross, what we see is God in the flesh. Much like Hosea was the message of God in the flesh. Jesus comes 
as the messenger, as God in the flesh, to embody in himself on the cross the judgment, the wrath of God. He comes not bringing judgment. He comes to bear Israel's judgment. Because on the cross, you see Jesus cry, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me, forsaken me? What we see on the cross is Jesus being forsaken, being abandoned for those who deserve to be forsaken and abandoned. And this is the good news. That through that, Jesus goes to the grave, arises from the grave, beginning a brand new life, a brand new pathway of acceptance, that God's wrath is now past tense, it's over, it's been completely satisfied in Jesus, his son, and all who come to Christ by faith, place confidence in Jesus, are changed. So this is why Paul can write in the New Testament, in Christ, we are accepted in the beloved. The opposite is rejected in our sin. See, the reality is that all of us, to some degree, have played the whore. We've been given much by God, but we have turned our backs on this God. It's not the picture of someone that has turned their backs on a God that's not been kind or less than good, but upon a God that has been nothing but good. And yet what we see with God is he provides a way whereby we can be reconciled and restored back to him. The pathway of living the gospel is a pathway of embodying that story I just described in our lives, in every other relationship. This is why when relationships go awry, and they will, trust me, whenever you get a bunch of people like this, hundreds of people together in a church like Calvary Slow, we will step on each other's toes. We will sin against each other. We will break relationships to some degree, even though it might be intentional or unintentional. But what happens is the process that we go through being able to say, what can I do to be restored back to you again? Is the process of putting on display the gospel message over and over and over again. But we can't do that unless we understand the depth of the offense that we've created against our God and the depth of forgiveness that has been offered to us through Jesus. When you personalize that, when you see yourself as that adulterer or that problem child, and you see God as the husband that has vowed himself to be faithful to you no matter what, that changes your heart. I want to finish with a quote. I have the worship team come on up and we'll wrap this up. But a guy by the name of David Powelson uh, wrote this great passage. I actually posted this on my Facebook wall a couple weeks ago, and I love the quote. It says this, God doesn't just accept you as you are. He loves you despite how you are. See, a lot of times we try to figure out, like, okay, well, maybe if I go to church, and maybe I get a little bit moral, and maybe if I stop sleeping with my girlfriend, and maybe if I start reading my Bible, and maybe if I start giving money away, and maybe if I help out at the church, and maybe if I go to prayer meetings, maybe God will love me. That's how you are. Stop doing that. It's not impressing God. It might be impressing other people. It doesn't impress God. God's love doesn't just accept you as you are. He loves you despite how you are. This love is much better than unconditional love. Perhaps we could call it contra-conditional love. Because contrary to what you deserve, he loves you. 
Isn't that good news? He doesn't kick you to the curb. He doesn't betray you. He doesn't turn his back on you. He doesn't say you failed. He doesn't say you let me down. Have we done all those? Yeah. Should we deserve all that? Yeah. But in spite of how you are, he lovingly, with open arms, adopts you, betroths himself to you. So in the book of Revelation, we see this picture where around the throne, Jesus is at the center. Perhaps what can be just accounted for like hundreds and hundreds of millions. Who knows? Scholars disagree and debate over all the time, but leave it to them. And every one of them are clothed in what the Bible describes as white gowns. Why? These are wicked, filthy, evil, adultering, sinful people that have betrayed love that is so immense that they've been washed, redeemed, restored. That love, if you let that love into your heart and you let it mold you and shape you, you know what type of person you'll become? You'll become a person whereby your love that you have placed upon all these other things will begin to be pried off, leveraged off of all these other things and placed onto God. You know what type of person you'll become like? You'll become a person like God. Why? Because you will become shaped by what you love. And you can't just somehow, by way of religion, force yourself, I'm going to be religious now. You will fail. Or you'll become very egotistical, arrogant, and berating towards everybody that doesn't do exactly what you do, which is messed up too. But to the degree that you see that God is a God that loves you and changes you, your heart will be changed and you'll become more like him. This is, in short, the story of Hosea, that God loves his people and at great expense to himself will bear and carry their offense as his means of remaining faithful to them no matter what. I want to finish. How about we all stand? And what I want to do as we finish is I want us to, again, like I said, to enter in emotionally, you know, not in a strange emotional sense, but emotion's good. I think, honestly, it's, I think one of the problems with the modern church, and a lot of times with dudes, guys are like, ah, give me a good Bible study. Spare the emotion. <laughs> you, don't, you don't get it then. You don't get it. You just want an intellectual connection. But people that are moved and transformed by God's love cannot help but pour out love. And if that's a hard thing for you, then I, 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 I beg you, Pray through that. Find an older man who loves Jesus and ask him to help mentor you through that. But let me say this. If you can relate with the story of being a problem child that's been adopted or a unclean, defiled woman that has been lovingly nurtured and brought in and clothed and robed in something white and pure, and you're moved by that, the Bible talks about proclaiming shouts of praise, like declaring the praises of God. Let's take a few moments and just declare, shout out God's praises. Not all at once, because we can't hear it like that. But, and if we kind of overlap, that's all right. It's no big deal. God can dice, you know, decipher all that. We might not be able to. That's fine. But let's just take a few moments.
And if God has done something in your life that's praiseworthy, and keep it short, you know, God, thank you. Like, for example, like this, God, thank you for adopting me, washing me, cleansing me. Move on and let someone else declare. Just shout it out as loud as you can so we can all hear it. We've got a big group of people here too. So just shout it out, declaring the praises of God. We'll just take a few moments and just declare the praises of God if you recognize, if you associate with that. We'll finish with a song or two and just worship God, partake of communion. If you're here and you've got kids in the back, please make sure like around 12, 35, um, just make sure you pick up your kids. and You're more than welcome to bring them back in if, you've, if you like. That's fine. But make sure you pick them up. And let's just take a few moments and declare the praises of God. Sound good? So what we need is we need someone to start the thing because nobody ever wants to start it. So if we have a bold person here right now, we know how, I'm sure we have a few of them, be bold enough to start this declaration of God's greatness in this room right now. So go for it. Say it nice and loud, guys, so people can hear you.
Jesus, I. 